This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is sponsored by Anderson Quantity Surveying. Based in Aberdeen but working throughout Scotland and beyond with almost 20 years experience in the construction industry, AQS specialise in all aspects of cost budgeting and control on construction projects. Whether you're embarking on a domestic or commercial refurbishment, extension or new build, AQS can provide you with budget cost plans, tender documentation, contractor comparison reports and cost management tools for use throughout the construction phase of your project. To find out more, give AQS a call on 01224 502 550 or email gary at andersonqs.co.uk. It's Tuesday, and you know what that means. Welcome to episode 44 of the ABZ Football Podcast. I'm Gavin J. Baxter, and joining me this week, it's Graham Steele. Graham, how's it going? Very well, thank you. I have a feeling this episode might have a little bit of a feel like it's been run by the substitute teachers as the main man's on holiday, so uh, apologies in advance to everyone. Let's hope it's not overly apparent. Yes, Gary, our, I guess, regular host, has requested an extra week off to go and recharge his batteries the season was just a little bit too much for my guess unlike Christian Ramirez though he is not in LA he is in Creef, I believe now I'm not trying to suggest anything but all I'm going to say is that Gary's father-in-law is a Celtic fan Celtic were presented the Scottish Premiership title at Parkhead this week and Gary is a lot closer to Glasgow than he is to Aberdeen well we'll let the conspiracy theorists work away on that one i'm not saying anything i'm just saying those are the facts that's what the data states hashtag do your research in a week that saw those of us who hold scottish football power so dear to our hearts we received the crushing news that mark mcgee will not continue his work as dundee manager the landscape of scottish football continues to change bonnie riggs rose dispatching of cowden beef edinburgh city reaching league one and queen's park joining cove rangers in the championship and of course, Andy Considine took to the field as an Aberdeen player for the final time as he walks off into the sunset, or as it's otherwise known, Cove. We take a look back at our 1-0 defeat with St. Johnston in Perth and our 0-0 draw with St. Bennett at Pataudry. We check in with the women's team and their 4-1 defeat to Glasgow City in midweek and their 3-2 defeat to Motherwell on Sunday. We take a regular look at the young team and after the break, we will bring you the third installment of our trilogy of interviews with John Hewitt as Gary and John discuss all things post the 1982-83 season. But first, St. Johnston won Aberdeen nil 11th of May 2022, McDermott Park, the SPFL Premiership. Now, by the time this episode goes out, it'll be a week since that game. And I think everyone's made it pretty clear what their feelings on the performance was that night. Graham, have you uh, taken in any of the footage? I've seen the goal we conceded, which is really, really poor when you look. So, I mean, I, I, can, I confess, I didn't watch the game. I was uh, I was out and about, so I was unable to. I mean, the clip just shows, like, Jack McKenzie out of position, trotting back. Bates has to come out, just basically lets the guy go past him, trots back, 
and then get, you know, it's not really a vintage season for Gallagher. But I think what frustrates me the most is, apart from the fact it's similar types of goals are always conceding, we're so soft, there's nothing more frustrating than seeing guys just basically trotting back. I mean, the Bates one in particular, if, for example, he's not going to catch the guy, but I feel like if he's if he's working hard to get back, the guy maybe hurries it or maybe Gallagher feels like he can go to the ball because Bates will then sort of take his position, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're just basically trotting back and leaving him to attack your attack your teammate, it's just not a good look. But to be fair, it just kind of seems to be the way we are this season. I mean, the rest of the game, I think by all accounts, was, again, <laughs> sounds like a broken record here, pretty much how the season's gone. We're just soft-centred, zero creativity, and we never look like scoring, but there's always a chance we're going to ship one. Yeah, I guess we don't need to go into that game in any huge amount of detail, but I guess the most peculiar things that happened in terms of selection, you know, Ross McCrory missed out, uh, Marley Watkins missed out, and Johnny Hayes was on the bench. We started Michael Ruth up front, and it's pretty public knowledge that Michael Ruth is away in the summer. I actually thought he was looked tidy enough, um, not given any service, but thought some of his link-up play was good. Adam Montgomery and Funzo Ojo also started, and the less said about their performances, the better. It is exactly what you say. It was a bright enough start without creating any real chances. And then 50 minutes in, it's a ball from Xander Clark. Mackenzie is nowhere to be seen in the shot. David Bates does not close down the man. The ball is played through and then it's put across to, here's me thinking that we're safe from Stevie May and Craig Bryson and the ex-Dons connection. But of course, up pops a smiling Callum Hendry who slots the ball past Joe Lewis with Declan Gallagher, I don't know, scrolling Instagram at the same time. And from there on, yeah, there was nothing. Um, I spoke with Ali before the St. Mirren preview, and Ali told me there was two shots on target, and that's one more than I can remember. Because all I can remember is a very tame Lewis Ferguson here that went straight at Xander Clark. And then we hustled and we huffed and we puffed, but nothing, absolutely nothing. Like you say, just a carbon copy of so many games through the season. It's frustrating that, it's the same over and over again. But I think what's more alarming is it's just not surprising. You know, it's I, I couldn't get to the game and I couldn't watch the game, but sitting there thinking, I will not be surprised if we if we don't come out with anything at all here. And I think that's what is more alarming. Generally speaking, games like that would have been pretty optimistic. We would have got something out as a minimum, probably might even have got away with the three. But you just look at any fixture now, um, and it's just a sign of how far we've come that there's not really anything that would really surprise you, is it? Unless you actually don't concede. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, St. Johnston were you know resolute and organised and they dealt with everything we, we threw at them pretty comfortably. I mean, we attended Gayfield for the Arbroath Inverness Cali Thistle second leg, which Cali Thistle won. And I think we said, after leaving the ground, um, immediately thinking that, you know what, I'd probably fancy St. Johnston to win this playoff tie. Then St. Johnston went and got scudded 4-0 by Hibbs, and suddenly I'm thinking maybe it's all to play for there. But uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, we heard all the comments. We saw them all. People enjoyed the chat we had with the Dogger Saints podcast. Guys, I mean, in editing that segment, I think it's about 40 minutes long, and there's maybe about five minutes of chat about the game at the beginning and maybe predictions at the end. And the rest of it is completely irrelevant, utterly chaotic, but I think it was quite entertaining, wasn't it? I would agree from my personal point of view, easily the most exciting part 
of you know anything we've had to do with St Johnston this season was the chat with those guys. The games have been gross, but I thoroughly enjoyed um, chatting to the boys. So um, maybe we can get that going next season if we're both. I was going to say if we're both in the same league, one of us is and one of us to be determined. We don't have any skin in the game as far as that playoff goes, but who would you rather was in the Premiership next season? Uh, I don't really. I mean, St Johnston don't really put me up or down. I don't mind Inverness. <sighs> I'd probably say Inverness just on the basis that it's a trip not down A90 as usual. <laughs> it's just somewhere slightly different and it's been uh, it's been a wee while. So, um, sorry, boys, if you're listening to this at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see what happens in that one. I think. I mean, I think every playoff, the team from below has gone on to win. So we'll see if St. Johnston can buck that trend. But yeah, not a good way to sign off the league season with that 4-0 scudding at Hibs, but... It happens to the best of us, I suppose. So then we move on to Sunday, the 15th of May, 2022, Pitodri Stadium, SPFL Premiership. It's quite a befitting way to end this campaign. It was Aberdeen, nil. St. Minnan, nil. Four changes for the Dons. Andy Constein taking the captain's armband for his 571st and final appearance for the club. Also back in the starting 11 were Ross McCrory, Marley Watkins and Johnny Hayes. Funzo Ojo, Michael Ruth, Adam Montgomery and Declan Gallagher taking their places on the bench. All in all, it was a bright start for the Dons and they nearly got themselves in front but for a great save from Jack Alnick, denying a curling effort from Lewis Ferguson which looked destined for the top corner of the net. From the subsequent corner, the ball landed at the feet of Constantine but a fairy tale goal in his last game was blocked by the St. Mirren defence. St. Mirren had a couple of efforts, a Henderson shot flashing over at Joe Lewis's crossbar before the Dons keeper reacted smartly to save a McCarthy header, which came about through a St. Mirren free kick. The first booking of the game came around the half-hour mark with Erehon dragging Connor Barron to the ground in an NFL-style piece of defensive play. I mean, Graham, I think you're more into rugby than me. I mean, what would you call that? It was uh, it was robust. 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 Yeah, I like that. The Dons continued to hustle, but a lack of quality in the final third, where we heard that one before, meant we couldn't turn our possession into any clear-cut chances. That was until the ball fell nicely to Hayes, who was able to run an exposed Buddy's backline before feeding the ball to Barron, who did all the right things, firing low to Alnick's left, but the keeper made a great save to deny Barron his first Pataudry goal. From the corner, the ball ended up in the net, McCrory smashing the ball past the Saints keeper, but Don Robertson ruled the goal out, apparently deeming Marley Watkins to have unfairly impeded Alnick. And then moments later, this is when things just got a little bit silly. Connor Barron lofted a free kick to the back post area. David Bates rose above Scott Tanzer to head the ball back across goal. And clear as day, the ball strikes Tanzer's hand way above his head. And Don Robertson, as he should have, awards the penalty to the home side. Remarkably, though, seemingly after being advised by Alnick, Gogic, and a few other St. Mirren players, the linesman, and Jim Goodwin confirmed this in his post-match interview, advised Robertson that the ball did not hit Tanzer's hand, but had in fact hit the back of his head. Now, Graham, I would implore you to bring up a picture of Scott Tanzer. What you might notice is that he has got a very nice full head of hair. And what you will also notice is that he is not a werewolf, and he does not appear to have, like, you know, Richard Keyes-type hands. So for the life of me, I cannot understand how the linesman has reached this decision. In addition, he's also unsighted by David Bates. Yeah, 
what I can't understand is the guy who can see it and gave it then decides that the guy who can't see it has had a better view and can make an informed decision. Unbelievable. I mean, we'll come on to this soon, I'm sure. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this uh, later as we analyze this season in a more comprehensive manner than we're going to do tonight. But it's another one of these decisions that goes against us. And it's a, it's a match-changing decision. Because if we go in at 1-0 at half time, you know, the game is completely changed. But I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Um, it's an astonishing decision, the kind of which we have seen all too often, not just with Aberdeen, but across Scottish football this past 12 months. And with that being the case, the teams went in all square at half time. In the second half, Considine rose to beat the ball from a corner, but couldn't keep his effort on target. And moments later, it was the moment we all knew was coming. Um, apparently struggling with a knock, the man of the day departed the Pataudry turf for the final time wearing that famous red shirt, receiving the standing ovation his contribution to the club so richly deserves. He was replaced by Declan Gallagher, who did not receive quite as warm a welcome. The Dons continued to try and break Sitman and Dan, but with no real belief or conviction in our play, more changes occurred. Dante Polvara and Marley Watkins replaced by Funzo Ojo and Liam Harvey, respectively. McCrory moving to centre midfield with Ojo going to right back. A late lunge near the Dons penalty box by Aaron on Baron could easily have seen the Samaritan player sent off for a second yellow, but Don Robertson felt the offence was not worthy of any real attention. Johnny Hayes continued to try with all his might to get that winning goal, a long-range effort stinging the palms of Alnick. Matt Kennedy would replace Case with 10 minutes to go, and he nearly set up Liam Harvey for a goal on his Pataudry debut, but as was the story of the day, the Dons attacker was denied by Alnick. All in all, the Dons didn't quite have enough, and the game ended in a tame 0-0 draw. Simmerin, no doubt happy to end the season with a point away from home. Graham, your thoughts? Overall, I'd probably say pretty frustrated. I mean, it was it's just basically the way we are, isn't it? The start was quite good. I was quite enjoying Povara. He looked reasonable on the ball early on and actually was a little bit uh, tougher in the tackle than I thought he might be. So that's good. Looks like he's... Because he's, he's quite a big lad. So yep. you'd, you'd expect him to be able to um, put himself about. So that that was all good. Uh, I mean, that, that running shot from Ferguson in the first five, six minutes, great move, great shot, pretty decent save, to be honest. And at that point, um, and I guess, yeah, Constantin has his, uh, his chance not long after that. I was thinking, right, this is a little bit more exciting. We... We were getting the ball forward. I don't mean shelling it. I mean we were passing the ball forward a little quicker than we had been, uh, you know, most of the season. And we were starting to find some opportunities through, you know, good team moves or individual runs. And it's all starting to look quite positive. And then I don't know what it is. There's like a, it's almost like there's a trigger point if they get to fifteen and twenty and it hasn't worked. And then they just, it's like panic and regress or down tools. I don't know what it is. Things that were happening and working stopped and all of a sudden St Mirren started to get a foothold in the game and basically if you give any, it doesn't really matter who you're playing, if they're a good team or a bad team, if you're giving them a chance to get a foothold in the game, you're just making life difficult for yourself. And then after that, it's pretty much the pattern of the season, wasn't it? Um, we were just far too slow and there's just no creativity or, I say there's no creativity or pace, I thought Bajewin was pretty tidy, enjoyed watching him, but it just there's a couple of times where he think he made the wrong decision, but I feel like he he feels like he's got to do everything himself. Yeah. Um, and I can see where he's coming from because there's a couple of times where he gets the ball and like nobody's near him. 
right? So then he does try to take someone on that he maybe didn't expect to have to, loses the ball and people are getting frustrated. Our teammates are claiming, oh, he could have passed here. It's like there was no one around him. He had one or two guys on him straight away and no one's given him even just an easy option. So it was, it's just all a little bit frustrating. A um, couple of decent performances from the usual suspects. I thought Brazilian was good. I thought Barron was pretty good. Uh, I, I was pretty sure he was going to score when he was through because he's just having that kind of season. He looks composed. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was a it was a pretty good effort and it's a pretty good save, but I was when he when the ball broke to him I was like yep yeah, this is in one 0 here we go and obviously didn't quite work out so yeah the usual suspects putting a shift McCrory Ferguson some of the guys are just so far off the pace I mean Ojo I don't think I was alone being quite vocal around the start of the season the European games and we scored at Tynecastle thinking right great he's back he's looking quite good. And I have no idea what happened. But when there was one moment where I think it was McCrory was in the box and Ojo had literally like a five yard pass straight ahead of him, right into his feet, yes. ballooned it out. Yes. And at that moment, that was like, okay, thanks, Funjo. But uh, <laughs> there's a man who's just nowhere near at the level we need. And it's just basics, he's not alone, but it's basics like that, where the odd time we did create some space. It's a stupid pass, it's behind the person, that sort of thing. So there were some highlights in there, but there was an awful lot of just the way, I was going to say the way it's been all season, the way it's been on the good one as well, which is the bit that maybe kind of alarms me a little bit because that's the one thing that's going to be consistent over this season into next is that the management team's going to be there. So I think they're going to have the work cut out to get the kind of players in and the volume of players that they need in order to implement what it is they're actually trying to trying to achieve with that team. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that um, Ojo McCrory pass. Of course, we um, sit, I say sit, we stand in the red shed. Um, of course, with you having to supervise the workmen who I think are, what, putting another wing on your mansion or something like that. Is that that's what's happening? Uh, and with Gary hanging out with Hoopy the Hound, I mean, in Creef, I was solo. And of course, depth perception is a thing. So it was like this really kind of almost delayed groan as people realize, oh, he's actually just punted that out of play effectively. It's Yeah, it was not a difficult pass. He was not yeah. under any pressure. I mean, there's no way where you can kind of develop a narrative to uh, to get him out of jail there. It was just an absolutely woeful bit of football for someone who gets paid to play football. That's very true. I would not be happy if I was on receiving end of that at goals. I mean, I suppose it's different because there's a wall, but you know, the point remains. True. I think it's interesting you mentioned Danny Polvara because I thought he was really good today. I was pleased with him. Yeah, it was good start, isn't it? And it, I don't know if you caught, well, obviously you wouldn't have caught because you were there, but his interview after the game was quite good. And they were asking him, you know, basically, how have you found it? And he was saying, look, it's been a bit of a struggle. Um, I guess managers change and teams not doing well and stuff. And he says, from you know, from his point of view, he's just been really glad to get some minutes in and just try and get his head around what what the league's all about. What can he do better and think about over the summer so that hopefully come next season, you know, he can feature a little bit more. So there's a guy guy that seems to recognise that yeah, he's got a bit of work to do. But yeah, I thought it was a tidy performance, and albeit it's a small sample size, but I think there's more than enough to suggest that we might get something out of him next season. I don't mean he'll come in after the summer and start every game, but I, based on what I've seen today, I'd be quite content to see him feature more next season. Yeah, I mean, I thought he was technically very good against St. Johnston. Um, maybe not quite as 
prepared to get in about things in the in the physical sense. But today against Simiron, I thought that changed. He was willing to put himself about, like you say. He's I think he's about six foot three, so he's a very good size, um, very athletic guy. And you know, he there's been a lot of conjecture about his ability to step up from where he was in America. Obviously, college football to the Scottish Premiership is a is an enormous, enormous leap in quality. And there's been a lot of speculation over whether he's been going to be up to it from people who have never seen him. And he's come in the last few games, and I think he's shown that there's definitely something to work with there. I think I look forward to seeing what he does next season when he's got a preseason in him. He gets to understand what the manager will expect from him. My only kind of concern about Dante is, and it's not even a concern about Dante Polvara as such, but more about the way we balance our squad. Today he played as the sort of holding midfielder in the three, and it's like, I was under the impression that he was kind of more like a box-to-box goal-scoring midfielder based on the footage we saw of him um, in the States. Do you think that's a position that he can excel in and then we build around him to then perhaps get some midfielders that can complement him rather than having the situation we've had so often this season where we've basically got three midfielders who do the same job? I think that's fair. Again, I have the advantage of listening to his interview after, which you didn't, and he referenced the fact that when he arrived in January, had his, was it a hernia? operation yes. so he was out of action so and he said himself like you know you can train all you want but you can't replicate match environment and get the match fitness and stuff and he acknowledged the physical element he said I, I know I need to um can't remember his exact wording well what he basically said was like I need to just be flying into tackles I, I need to be into that you know straight away whereas that's obviously not maybe the way the game is um at the college level so I think he he's acknowledged there's a couple of bits and pieces to work on which you flagged it's difficult to know I guess it's pretty clear Goodwin doesn't have the players he wants or needs, so it's difficult to really say right, there's a guy who's played a few times is that that's his position and we thought it was something else. Because I agree with you, he's it looks like he'll have a decent engine on him once we get him up to speed. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that we, I mean, basically we need guys running from midfield and beyond, don't we? I mean, that's one of the reasons is, or I think one of the reasons we hardly score any goals in today there were a couple of good crosses put in and you know you've got Watkins yeah so obviously there's only so many places he can be in the box and if you've got no one from midfield try to get in support then most teams in Scotland are just going to pack the box and they'll have big units at the back who'll just head everything away and if you've only got one guy it's going to be you need a mistake from the opposition or an outrageous ball to find that one guy in a you know, a pool of five or six. So I'd like to see some more attacking options and I kind of feel like he looks like he's going to be strong enough to run with the ball. Like you say, he's got the physique, he looks tidy enough on it. So I hope we would see him getting forward a little bit more because um, I think that's more of what we, we thought we were getting. Absolutely. I mean, when it comes to Jim Goodwin, we've made a, a feature of this. So when we take into consideration the St. Johnston and St. Mirren games, Jim Goodwin's record at Aberdeen sits as two wins five defeats and five draws. Gary had a little chat on Twitter on Wednesday. Um, I think we can all agree that it's not Jim Goodwin's team and there's a lot of work to be done, but where are you standing now that the season is over and how do you feel about the upcoming summer with, with Jim Goodwin at the helm? It's, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I said it at the time, in my personal view, was not an exciting or an inspiring appointment. I don't really see what he's done to get the job 
I'm not seeing anything that's really changed my opinion when he made those throwaway comments around, well, fix the defence in no time at all is just as bad as it was, which is not why I expected that. I actually thought he probably, to the detriment of what little attacking flair we had, I thought he would sort out the defence. I thought we'd be stuffy and niggly and difficult to break down. It's just not been the case. But it may be that those stuffy, niggly players, we don't have them, for example, so we can't quite do that. So I'm not being particularly impressed when the, and the record is not good. Nobody can... You can spin it any way you want, but the, the, those facts you read out are just not good enough. That being said, we just draw a line under it. We go into next season. I think it's just going to be difficult because with the sheer number of people that uh, players we're going to have to replace, I feel like we've said it before, it's going to take a few windows. So where does the, oh, it's not a good wins team stop? Because he's unlikely yeah. to bend everyone out in the summer and have everything he wants. So at some point that can't be a valid excuse. He will have a set of players that he's had for, you know, six months, a year, whatever it may be. And they then kind of become his. So it's got to be optimistic. I mean, they were joking on Red TV saying the one positive he's got is it can't get any worse. I was like, well, settle, settle down, boys. Um, again, it's just, it's just difficult to know what we're trying to achieve and what sort of players we're, we're after. But I think we've said before, this is this will be the first proper transfer window or certainly summer window with everyone you know we've got the recruitment people in place we've got everyone that we need higher up in the, the board positions we now have a management team who have been in plenty of time and must know what is expected of them in terms of recruitment you know like it turned out in the Cormac interview that Mowbray didn't turn up until September so maybe maybe Glass and Co were told one thing in terms of what they would or wouldn't be doing recruitment-wise, and then that changed, so that might have made things a little trickier. I feel like nobody's got any excuses now. We've got everyone that we're told we want to have. They're in situ. They have been, in most cases, for a period of time. If there's any truth to the rumours that um, you know Ramsey's going to go for some money, if Ferguson goes, there's allegedly the McKenna clause. If the Northern Forest get promoted, they're in good shape currently. I it's a decent chunk of money potentially coming our way. And I would say somewhere all of that needs to be invested in the team. So time will tell, but I've not quite ended the season with uh, sort of that new manager bounce and vibe that I thought we might end with. Yeah, well, just to add to those statistics about Goodwin, I've noted the uh, the split results. And it's, I mean, that, was, that, reads, that reads one win two defeats and two draws. We've scored three goals against the bottom five teams along with ourselves, two of which were Lewis Ferguson penalties and one of which was a David Bates goal from a set piece. It screams out um, what we've been talking about, I think, for the bulk of the season, especially leading into January, that there is just absolutely nothing in the way of creativity in our team. Um, Jim Goodwin referenced that Vinny Bajowin is a guy that gets people off, off their seats and he needs three or four more of them. Um, it sounds like, based on what he's saying, that the work has been done, players have been identified, and players that will come in and significantly improve the team. I think we just have to... I agree. It's not been the turnaround I expected from Jim Goodwin. I think that's maybe because I felt like so many that we had a better team than we... The position illustrated. As it's turned out, maybe we just didn't, and it was so such an unbalanced team. And then when you throw in the fact, there's just no confidence. I mean, there was times today that 
David Bates again. David Bates played all right today, I thought, especially in the first half when he was the right centre back. And he made one mistake and his shoulders just slumped in such a way that it made him look like he has like a hunchback. It's just, it's kind of sad to watch. Um, so the nice thing about football is there's always the next game. There's always the next season. Um, but yeah, and like you say, it's going to be a huge summer. We're recording this on Sunday. I expect maybe even on Monday they'll announce the, the list of players who've been released or are perhaps being told to find um, a club elsewhere, even if they're under contract. Dylan McGeek was not in the squad, but he came on the pitch for the kind of lap of honour. Seemed to be a very much a sort of farewell kind of thing. Constantine's gone. Ojo's out of contract. Um, like you say, it's going to be an enormous summer of recruitment and one we have to get right. Yeah, I think I suppose the final point in defence of Goodwin, which I've been made a couple of times, is a chunk of our goals that kept us going sort of first half of the season. Ramirez, who, don't get me wrong, has his limitations, but personally I was quite, I was quite pleased with how he was getting on in his debut season here and then his attitude seems to have dropped, which isn't a great reflection on a professional, in my personal opinion. So I guess Goodwin's had the fact that one of our better players or our goal threat has decided that he's not really up for it. So he's kind of up against that. So there are some mitigating circumstances. I think the most important thing, or two, I guess, is two. There's obviously the quality, but guys that understand what Aberdeen's about. It doesn't matter if it's Goodwin, because it might not be Goodwin in six, nine months two, three years, who, who knows, guys that want to play for Aberdeen and understand what that represents. And it sounds really like big-headed here, but for most guys that sign for Aberdeen, it's going to be as good as it gets. Yep. So they need to realise that, you know, being part of a team that gets us back up next season to the top end of the table, opportunity to hopefully qualify for Europe, a cup run, that's where you want to be in your career. And yeah, some of them will drop down to England and get more get more money, but they're not going to achieve anything better than playing for Aberdeen. They should realise that that is an opportunity they have to grasp. Likewise, I think we'll have our say on Christian Ramirez in a few minutes. Um, I know there's been a lot of opinions put forward about the news that came out last week, but we'll we'll get to that in a minute. I mean, on Saturday evening, they released the Red TV feature about Andrew Constantine and a kind of reflection on his time at Aberdeen. And there's a moment in it when he basically breaks down as he's talking about Aberdeen playing for Scotland. And I said, I tweeted it last night. I don't know. You know, I'm not one that's in for, you know, passion is the biggest thing in football. But if we had a handful of guys in that dressing room that cared as much about Aberdeen as Andrew Constantine does, then we wouldn't be in the situation we're in. And it's hard to like not look at that as a fan. See some of the players that I've treated playing for our club with seemingly contempt and unprofessionalism I'm not looking at anyone in particular Jay or Christian um let's talk about the man himself so this was his day and we should celebrate Andy Constantine we put out to Twitter like what was your favorite Andy Constantine memory and you know the goal against Rieka has come up the the goal against Motherwell in the quarterfinals of the league cup when we were down to 10 men um the hat trick at Dens Park, obviously, and the winning goal at Celtic Park that confirmed second place for us. I mean, I think you've been at a good few of those occasions, haven't you? I have been to most of them. I'm also thinking of there was the cup game at Rugby Park. I think it was midweek. The 4-3 um, game. Yeah, and it's it's Constantine that basically right the death gets us back into that 
um, you know, that that was a pretty good occasion. So, yeah, I've been to even one of my earlier probably away days at what was Love Street, him getting a double. So probably, to be fair, in some of my low lights as well, he's been a feature. But there are quite a lot of sort of good occasions we've all had going to the football together. And he's been a he's been a part of them. So yeah, it's a real shame. It's a shame the way it ended, I think, maybe more than the fact that it did end. It had to end at some point. And I can understand where the, the club was coming from a little bit of a pity the way it ended, but at least he did get that opportunity to uh you know to play some part in his last game rather than just you know he's on the bench and he comes on for a token minute or two. At least he did get a run out. And I think considering his age, the injury he's had and everything, thought he looked pretty tidy to be honest. I'm not trying to be funny about this, but his performance in the first half was as assured a centre back performance as, as I've seen from an Aberdeen player probably since Lewis Ferguson slotted in that position against St. Johnston in February. Uh, I thought he strolled it. I know that St. Mirren didn't come here with any real intent to win the game, but he looked so composed and people that were sitting in the South Stand or Richard Donald were pointing out that he was chatting to McKenzie and Bates all through the game and really helping them out with their positioning. Um, it's, I think... I don't necessarily disagree with the club's stance that he should not be offered more than one year. But like you say, it's 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 hard to imagine Andy Constantine not being an Aberdeen player. And next season, the possibility that he might even play against us, it's so unfathomable. I mean, we've been going to the football together, you know, for, what, 18 years now? Maybe even a little over, actually, yeah. Maybe closer yeah. to 20. Um we were both there for Andy's debut. It was against Dundee last game of the season in May 2004. Um, he was, from what I recall, our first team was basically decimated with injuries or told they weren't going to be kept around much longer. And it's an infamous kind of game because I remember um, there was a planned walkout at the end of the game, uh, which did not materialize primarily, I think, because we had a team full of kids who were actually playing pretty well one of those kids was Andy Considine. And I mean, you would never expect um, 18 years later, 19 seasons in, what that man's achieved. I mean, was he the best player for Aberdeen? No, but that's a guy that's made the absolute most of his ability and rightfully was recognized on Sunday as, I don't know if I think legend might be too strong a word, but a modern great. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I, you're never going to. I don't say you're ever going to see that again. Personally, I don't say we're ever going to get that again for uh, for Aberdeen. And I, if I'm honest, I would like to say, like I'm sitting here now, as you know, I'm so, sorry to see him go. He's been great. I didn't always think that. If I'm honest, I don't think I'm alone in thinking that. So there is also, I guess, it's always difficult to know who's going to make it and who's not. But there's a bit of me sort of feels like there is a reason why people say it takes time. And to be fair. One of the reasons he probably got time is when he was breaking in. So like we had a great deal of cash. Right? You know, we didn't have that luxury of right, we could go and get someone. That being said, like you said, he's obviously he's clearly worked very, very hard as a professional behind the scenes doing his own stuff. He's taken opportunities that have been given to him and he has improved with age. But part of that, I guess, is um he got the opportunity to play a decent number of games as a youngster, and that obviously builds experience and everything to, to become the player he became. So it, it's a shame. I, I know what you mean. 
I don't know. I don't know what defines a club legend. I feel it's always got to come down to look at my medals. And yeah. unfortunately, you know, considering there's not really stack up there. But to be fair, there's a dwindling pool of players who can say, "Look at my medals um, for Aberdeen." So just um, yeah, everything he achieved. I think everything he gave. I know you see some takes about well, he only stayed because he never got offers. May or may not be true. It doesn't really matter. He featured for that long because he was he was playing at that level. You know, he was good enough. It's not like we've had two or three years out from him, but we've all thought oh, this was two two or three years too much. He's been part of some of the lowlights, but he's like you say, he's been part of a lot of the good things that happened with the club. Sometimes just him individually through his goal. So it's a shame, like from a sort of personal point of view, local guy gets to play for the club, do what we'd all love to do. But also, I mean that's a that's a massive amount of experience gone. And it's going to be really difficult to replace that because I'm going to be honest, if um, I think, was he about 35? Yes, 35, yes. If we announced that, you know, we find a new central defender on a two-year deal and he's 35, I don't know if that's really going to get my pulse racing <laughs> during the summer. But jokes aside, where is that in the, the squad now? And of course, with that experience, like you say, he's a local lad. He understands what playing for Aberdeen is all about and the significance that goes with that. We've mentioned some of the moments people have mentioned. Um, as far as their favourite Constantine moment, what's yours? I think I'm going to have to go with the hat trick at the end because it's not very often you batter someone 7-0. <laughs> um, and just the way it all sort of happened. And then I remember when he was in the box and the ball was coming in, everyone was just sort of, the people have described it as almost like the the fans just sucking the ball, you know, towards him or in. And when it happened, yeah, I don't think I doubt I'll ever see anything like that. You know, in terms of that sort of scoreline and one of your defenders and a hat trick. Um, so I I probably have to go with that. I think I would tend to agree. I was watching that game on TV, and like you say, when the when Christie's setting up for the free kick, um, the crowd are chanting his name, and it just felt like it was destined to happen. Um, an honourable mention as well would go to the actual first game of this season when fans were allowed back in the stadium for the first time and he scored the first goal uh, of the season against Heck and I thought that was pretty pretty fitting and pretty special. Um, I don't think there's anything left to say other than, Andy, thank you very much for all you've given to Aberdeen Football Club. Yeah, absolutely. I'll second that. And I know if, um, if Gary wasn't quaffing Guinness and celebrating a title win, he would uh, he would back us up as well. Next week, we're going to do a pretty comprehensive analysis of the season, but I'm just going to read you some final grim statistics. In the league, 38 matches played, 10 wins, 11 draws, 17 defeats, 41 goals scored, 46 conceded, a goal difference of minus five. We finished the year in 10th place. When we started this show 44 weeks ago, I think we all understood this was going to be a different season and there was going to be inconsistency with blooding the youngsters and trying this new style of football. But if you can recall, what was your expectation and also what were you prepared to accept? I honestly can't remember what my expectation, like what I actually said it was. I've got to assume I would have been saying third or fourth because I don't really buy into this top six bottom six pish your third or fourth it gets you something the rest of it's 
you know, Woods Point. What I expected was probably a little, I probably thought if we hovered around about the middle, it wouldn't have been a great outcome. But I think what I was probably thinking would be, right, it's going to take a bit of time to gel the new players, a new style. So we might not get off to a great start, but you'd hope we would end the season on a on a strong note. And maybe that's when we would get most of our points all, for example, like the second half, maybe when it all starts to click. And then you'd be going into the summer saying, right, this is great. We finished maybe not where we wanted in the league, but look, we were playing good football. It was all starting to come together. I'm really excited. And, you know, just unfortunately we didn't get any of that, did we? And to be fair, I mean, it was quite exciting at the start. Those early European games were, uh, you know, some decent results in there, some decent performances collectively and individually from some players that didn't quite do that after that. Um, so it did go off to a good start, but it's just disappointing and it's just critical it's not repeated where does this rank as far as seasons that you've been up close and personal with Aberdeen I think it's probably got to be about the worst because like when I started going we weren't very good we weren't um, necessarily accustomed to almost that period of relentless cup finals or semi-finals and Know, top end of the table and playing some decent football and stuff. So, like, I feel this is the worst probably because we, I mean, it's a real cliff that we've fallen off. And I think there was an area of optimism at the start of the season. You know, not not just necessarily with those early results, but you know what we were led to believe was going to be the the aim in terms of the style of the football and it was going to be attacking and things like that. Probably, yeah, we probably all bought into that a little bit, and I think that's what makes it. Worse when you're excited about something and it doesn't happen. If you don't expect it, it's slightly different. It's a nice surprise. But I think when you are expecting or wanting something, you don't get it. It's harder to take. Yeah, I think we'll talk about this next week in great detail. Um, I do wonder if sometimes the heckin' first leg was almost a... What's the word I'm looking for? Almost a... Like a false dawn or... A false dawn, exactly. Yeah, it set ourselves up to fail almost. I think people went to that game with really no expectations and we smash this team from Sweden with all the international players they had and it's like oh this is gonna be great fun then I'd love I can't wait till next week when we look at the starting 11 for that game and look at the starting 11 for St Mirren and see just how much has changed in such a short space of time but we'll deal with that next week let's round things off here with your top Don it's obviously difficult not to go for constantly but I would probably actually I probably on jokes I probably would say Bajawan over the the ninth. I thought he kept on trying. He had some really good bits of skill. He's actually a lot more up for the fight than I thought he might be. I mean, he's quite stocky. He's quite strong. He doesn't really seem to be too scared of the physical side because he does get bumped about about quite a bit. So I actually thought he put in. There were a few guys that put in decent shifts today, but I was pretty happy with him. I'm happy with that. I think I'll go ahead and give it to. Connor Barron. I think he had a very, very good game and showed us what he's all about. And you know what? Keeps on this rate. The way the market is, we'll sell this guy for billions in years to come. In other news from Pataudry, now last week we received a tip off that our number nine, Christian Ramirez, was on a plane from Aberdeen to Amsterdam, presumably connecting through to the USA. A day later, Jim Goodwin confirmed in his pre-match interview, I believe, for the St. Johnston game that Ramirez has been allowed or granted an extra week off 
to go to the US to be with his family and recharge his batteries to come back next season fresh as a daisy. Now, Ramirez's attitude on the pitch, off the pitch, since the departure of Stephen Glass has been not what you'd desire. Um, Then given that he has departed with only five days left to go of the season, um, speculation of a fallout with the manager, how much are you willing to bet on Christian Ramirez being an Aberdeen player next season? Uh, None of my own money. I just, I'd be really surprised. I don't know if I've ever really seen that before at Aberdeen where, like, it, you know, someone is officially sanctioned to go on holiday before the season ends and they're not injured in any way, shape or form. Because, you know, if he was wearing like a protective boot or something like that, you think, well, he obviously isn't going to be playing then. Yeah, why would you make him hang around if his family's not with him? But considering they've not come out and said, yeah, he's got a niggle, he wouldn't have featured. So they're basically just saying, oh, you know, fine, if you want to go, go. I just don't really see how you can come back from that, to be perfectly honest. So really disappointing. If it is indeed the end, it's a disappointing way for him to end what up until about the tail end of January, February, when the management changed, was proven to be a reasonable first season. Yeah, I mean, you go back to the very beginning, you know, he scores on his debut against Hecken, he scores twice against uh, Brighton League in Iceland, gets a good header against United, and, you know, it's that line from, is it Casablanca? You know, this looks like it's going to be the start of a beautiful friendship, and um, it's left a really bitter taste in the mouth, I think, how this is, you know, I mean, I'll say, I think this is over. I can't see him coming back to him Aberdeen next season. Um, I imagine some kind of agreement will be reached where he is allowed to move on a free transfer. Um, I'm not sure how things work in America in terms of their window, but um, I suspect that he will not be an Aberdeen player next season. And like I say, it's a shame because it started well. His attitude has been unacceptable for an Aberdeen player. I think we can all understand, you know, we've spoken with guys um, and you learn through that that they're people as well as footballers and they have their personal lives and things are difficult when you move from the US to to Scotland of course but like you say Christian Ramirez he signed a contract to play for Aberdeen playing for Aberdeen is going to be the biggest thing he does in his career and he's just not I don't think he's understood that which is upsetting because he seemed like he really did understand or wanted to try and understand what being at Aberdeen was all about when he first came and everything was all you know, roses and everything nice. Um, yeah, disappointing the way to end. He'll leave with, what, 15 goals scored? I think it's 15 goals, which is by no means a bad return, especially when you get a state of that team from a creative point of view, and he didn't take penalties. So, mm-hmm. again, which is why it's a little bit disappointing, because I think, yeah, if he is limited... But let's be honest, anyone who signs for Aberdeen has limitations. That's why we can afford them. But I think we could have had more out of him this season when we really needed him because yeah. we were desperate for goals. Completely agree. Um, Christian Ramirez, I guess we'll, uh, we'll see you around. Maybe. Say hello to Ronnie for us. Other news, which has not officially reached us via the club, but we have, once again, pretty good reason to believe. Uh, Oscar Linner is on trial at Cormac Park. For those of you who may not be familiar, Oscar is a Swedish goalkeeper, and a Swedish international goalkeeper, actually. Uh, made his debut for Sweden in a friendly match against Iceland in January 2019, that being his one K 
cap. Uh, 25 years old, six foot six. He started his career at AIK in Sweden, made the move to Armenia Bielefield. No idea if that's the right pronunciation, but I'm going to go with it. Uh, Lone moves to Brescia and then apparently a team called Gif Sundsvall. But speculation that he is on trial with um, Jim Goodwin, making it clear that he is looking for a new goalkeeper to provide competition for Joe Lewis. Interesting. I think Joe Lewis said in the week that he is very much here to stay and looking forward to cementing his place as Aberdeen goalkeeper next season. How do you feel about that? Uh, the Lewis piece. Yes. I'm fine with that. I like I like Joe Lewis. He's not alone in having had a relatively poor season. I do think the last few games we've seen him back to his best. He's made some good saves. You know, it looks like he's commanding his box. It's probably having never been in his position. I can't. I mean, he's used to have, have having had sort of a, a settled and pretty competent defense around him, which presumably makes life a little bit easier. Whereas now he's maybe not sure should he come or shouldn't. What, what a guy's going to do? So I, I like Joe Lewis. I don't think he's passed it by any means. Um, so if he's here and he starts as our number one. I don't have any problems with that. Yeah, I suspect Oscar Liner is one of many players we are looking at. Um, I'll tell you what, Jack Alnick, if he is on our radar, that was a pretty damn good audition today, actually, for uh, coming to Aberdeen, because he is the reason St. Mirren did not lose that game by four or five goals. Yeah, they were saying on Red TV, I can't remember if they said he was going to Cardiff or if that's where the smart money was. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess, yeah, everyone knows what he's all about. He is pretty... Pretty tidy, and he proved that today. So, I, I think I'm happy with Lewis being number one. I do think we do need to probably move Gary Woods on. He did have a little shot, and certainly wasn't any better. I just think people maybe think we're going to get some superstar sub goalie who's going to be better than Lewis or just as good as. I just don't think the budget allows it. Personally, um, yeah. I'm, I should say, like I say every week, I'm happy to be proven wrong. I'd be I'd be surprised if Lewis isn't number one next season even if it's purely from the point of view of he has what, a couple of years left to go on his deal I want to say two yeah so with the amount of bodies we need to get in and I, I don't I don't think there'll be any money to pay guys off who are probably on decent contracts well even if it's that reason alone he's still going to be here and if he's still going to be here I'd be surprised if we can bring in anyone better I think as well people can say what they want about Joe Lewis but I think you can definitely tell how much he cares and yeah, that's not the worst thing to have around. And I tend to agree. I think he's done pretty well, probably not as well as the Joe Lewis we know, but in recent weeks, I think he's come back into his game and yeah, I'll have no issue with Joe Lewis as our goalkeeper next season, but we'll keep an eye on things. I'm sure there'll be lots more chat when it comes to incomings and outgoings as the summer goes on. On to the women's team and in midweek, uh, Wednesday as well actually as when we played St Johnston the women's team they lost out by four goals to one to Glasgow City the Dons competing very well with the 1,000 million time SWPL champions Donna Patterson equalising um, for the Dons after Fatal Katz gave the host lead but in the end as has been the story throughout the season the professional teams just I guess their fitness Ability was the the difference, and it was a second half double from Abby Grant and a goal from Laura Davison completing the scoring for the hosts, who won it by four goals to one. And then on Sunday, the women's team travelled 
back to Glasgow, but this time to play Motherwell because Aberdeen always play Motherwell. What other reason could there be for it? Uh, the Dons went a goal behind after 12 minutes when Motherwell left back Gillian Ingalls made a run down the left before cutting inside and placing a low shot into the bottom corner of the net. This coming after Dons keeper Meech had made a decent save to keep the score 0-0 just a couple of minutes earlier. The home side kept up the pressure, but just before halftime, Francesca Ogilvy brought the Dons level, leaving the game finally balanced at 1-1 at halftime. The Dons would make a double change with Louise Brown replacing Ava Thompson and Kelly Forrest leaving the pitch for the final time following her retirement to be replaced by Carrie Doig. Carrie receiving the captain's armband from Kelly in what will also be her last game. I speak on behalf of Graham and Gary, and we wish Kelly and Carrie all the best in their life after football. On 79 minutes, Ogilvy put the Dons ahead, but this lead only lasted six minutes as Gemma Hughes equalised for the hosts. And despite it looking like the Dons would come away with a well-earned point, the home team scored a late winner to leave the final score at Motherwell 3, Aberdeen 2. This result means the women end the season in fifth place in the 10-team league, an achievement they should be proud of considering the Dons were put into the division this season and they're competing with some full-time teams in the league. I mean, I, I saw the piece with um, Gavin Levy when they were talking about the decision to go semi-professional and sign um, some of the girls up to full-time contracts. They made a very specific goal to finish behind Hibs in fifth place, and they've achieved that. So all power to the Quines. Great season. A lot has been learned, and we look forward to seeing what they do next season. Very much so. Let's hope the men's team can emulate. What, fifth place? Do you know what, right now? <laughs> I'd maybe be taking that. And on to the young team, the Aberdeen under-18s finished their Club Academy Scotland campaign with a 1-1 draw against Celtic at Barrafield in the east end of Glasgow. A very, very young Aberdeen side with Tom Ritchie, Brian Duncan, Evan Teller, Liam Harvey all remaining to train with the first-team squad at Carmack Park. Finlay Murray and Blair McKenzie also missing out through injury. A very even affair. The first half, few chances at either end. Celtic having more possession, but the visitors having a number of counter-attacks. Cammy Wilson and Adam Emsley both had half chances, but could not produce the final touch. Just on the stroke of halftime, Celtic took the lead. Um, Aberdeen failing to put enough pressure on the ball. And Daniel Kelly producing a fine finish from 20 yards into the corner of the net. But credit to this very, very young Aberdeen side as they came out and dominated the second half, uh, eventually turning their possession into chances and causing Celtic some real issues. Wilson had another opportunity and Dylan Lobbin had a strike that was blocked. With about 15 minutes to go, Lewis Pitty burst into the area and he was brought down by the goalkeeper McLean and Aberdeen had a penalty. But unfortunately, Dylan Lobbin missed his spot kick, hitting the post. The Dons, they kept going through, and with just under 10 minutes left, Finlay Marshall produced an excellent strike to beat McLean and ensured Barry Robson's young side finished the season on a positive note. A thoroughly deserved draw, probably doing enough to win the game, which is all the credit to the guys because travelling to Celtic is always difficult uh, when you consider the number of players that were kept to be involved with the first team, even more credit. It's been, it's been a pretty remarkable season for the under-18s given... The number of players have not been available, frankly, to buy Robson. So it's showing, I think it's showing there's real reason to be optimistic about the players that are coming through our academy right now. I think so. It's encouraging the, the quality of the players, but but also in the likes of Robson, 
you know, because I guess it goes twofold. You've got to have the, the players, but you've got to have someone to organise them and motivate them and look after them. So it sometimes tend to lose a little bit of sight. I mean, you know, the, the men's first team attracts the majority of the attention and clearly that's not that's not in great shape currently. But there are there are positive um there are positive bits and pieces going on at the, the other age levels um and other and other teams in the club. So overall, you know, it's not a terrible season if you look at the club in general and that under 18s in particular, because you never know that might be some of those guys in the summer or they might be a couple of seasons away. But if they're uh, if they're competitive, that's just got to be good for us. Because let's let's be realistic, we we need we need guys to come through that we can then sell, and we need some guys to come through that maybe aren't quite good enough to go for the big bucks, but are absolutely good enough to hold down a place in the team, and that's all some of your recruitment. So that's optimistic and certainly something to uh, probably look forward to for next year. I think that's a very good point you've just made about Barry Robson actually, because he is very well regarded at Putaudry and I think he's well regarded in Scotland as being a very good coach he was given the role of caretaker when Stephen Glass left um, for one game against St Johnston I really hope we can retain by Robson going forward because he is doing some great work and it's hard to it's hard to believe he's not looking around thinking maybe this is my time to step up and we're at that point in the summer where clubs are shipping their managers out you know for example Dundee uh, I think Wraith Rovers are still looking for a manager. Do you think there's any possibility that Barry might move on and start his own, you know, first-team managerial career? It's a fair point. You, you, you never know really what he's been promised or what path club have told him that he's on. I mean, it never works like, okay, Barry, if you do this for three years, you know, you're then the first-team manager because it, you know, it doesn't work that way. So whether there's some sort of opportunity for him to progress up because you do you you want guys that you don't necessarily need ex-players but you need the experienced players in the team I think it is beneficial to have guys that have played for the club and have an idea of what it means to put on the shirt and represent Aberdeen as a player I think it's a you know it's a slightly different attitude or mentality you have if you've been there um, as a player so yeah it's probably unreasonable to assume that he's just going to sit tight and not look, you never know if he's got, by all accounts, he does have a good reputation. You're right, teams teams will get rid of managers in the next few days, weeks. The, the merry-go-round will, will pick up. So even if he's not necessarily looking, if he's got a reputation, it doesn't mean his phone won't be going off. So I kind of hope that we can hold on to him. But then you're right, there comes a point where if he's got aspirations to actually manage in his own right, where would you go in the Aberdeen setup? I mean, Goodwin was pretty vocal around clearing out the likes of Brown, etc., because of the way he likes to be hands-on, and he's obviously got his team, so there's not an obvious vacancy to step up to the first team. But as a as a sort of assistant type, per, you know, type role, so it's maybe difficult to see where he goes if he does get a little bit frustrated. But fingers crossed, doesn't come to that at least not for a season or two. Very interesting. But all the credit in the world to all the lads that have played for the under 18s this season. It's been a very good campaign on their part. It's that time. 38 league matches, done and dusted. And now we look to Fantasy Football Scotland. Graham, I know you've got the app locked and loaded. How did you do this week? 37 points, which isn't very good. It says the average is 29. 
So this was my little over that, but it's just much of a muchness for me. I'm pretty much just copying the dawn. So I finished third in our little league ahead of Gary, which you know I guess people have the view in his his football knowledge. That may or may not mean that I'm any good at fantasy football, <laughs> but still I'll take that. And I finished 154th out of 245 in the ABZFP league. I'm too embarrassed to read out where I finished in the other leagues I was in. <laughs> what are you trying to say about the guy that would have given Kevin Rukovic a new deal? <laughs> I think he knows what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I finished up with 38 points this week, so one point better than yourself. I'm not really sure how that's happened because I've just I've chucked this. I mean, Bruce Anderson's still in my striking position. I think he's been crocked for about four months now. Nevertheless, I mean, in our mini league, I finished behind our mate Bones, who I'm pretty sure selects them. Yes, he does. So that's null and void. So I've won our mini league. When it comes to the ABZFP league, I finished in 113th place. Shall we? Do we have the patience to find where Gary is in this? You can work your way through the winners, if you like, and I will scroll right down to where he is at the bottom. Because that is the big part, obviously. Um, wow. Wow. Things have changed. Things have changed big time in the last two games. The time has come to unveil the winners. In third place, John Easton with Grey Growlers, who have not been in the top three for a very long time, off the back of a 113-point week in game week 38. He has got himself into that third place position. Congratulations, John. Greg Rowlers. And with Heart Attack and Melodian, who I don't think have been in the top three all season, you and Dallas has snuck in there 109 points in week 38. Second place, the silver medal position. But as I think we've all known for some time now, Jack Curran, the two turkeys, he takes gold. 68 points. I mean... Not even close to the guys behind him there, but overall, 2,403 points. Near enough, 100-point lead. A much richly deserved winner. Congratulations to our top three. Yes, and Jack in particular, it looks like he was given a couple of weeks off to recharge his batteries before the end of the season as well. Absolutely. So as a good effort. Gary finished in 185th place. 185th. 185th. That is... It's quite frankly embarrassing. That is not vintage. That is not vintage. I mean, I am gutted for Stephen Brown, gold frankincense and gur. He has dropped out of the medal positions at the very final hurdle. But that is how the cookie crumbles sometimes. Um, Jack, you and John will be in touch. Or I guess you'll need to get in touch with us for us to arrange your prizes. We'll get the deets out and get those all to you. It's been good fun. I'm sure we'll do this again next season. Well done, everyone. Apart from Gary. And so that wraps up part one of this week's show. Join us after the break as we continue our series of interviews with Gothenburg great John Hewitt. To play us out, here is Lotus Crush with their track Blood in the Water from their 2015 album Rabbit Hole. Lotus Crush recently released the deluxe edition of this album and you can check that out on Spotify. Lotus Crush, of course, featuring one Terry McDermott of Drive Blind fame, a name I'm sure will be familiar with more than a few of our listeners. This is Lotus Crush 
and their song, Blood in the War.
This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is brought to you by Anderson Quantity Surveying. If you've engaged with an architect for your construction project, chances are they've provided you with an average cost per square metre for your project. But speak to AQS who could provide you with a fully broken down budget cost plan based on your feasibility or planning drawings. AQS's cost plan allows you to know right from the start if your design is affordable before you even apply for a building warrant. And it allows you to see where all your costs lie, enabling you to identify cost savings at the outset. To find out more, give AQS a call on 01224 502 550 or email gary at andersonqs.co.uk. Welcome back to part two of this week's show. We are delighted to bring you the third and final instalment of our series of interviews with the Gothenburg great John Hewitt. Now, last week, we took a in-depth look at the 1982-83 season where John talked to us about beating Real Madrid in the rain in Gothenburg and, of course, the infamous Scottish Cup final where Fergie read the riot act on the Hamden turf. This week... Gary and John discuss all things post the 82-83 season and we find out just exactly what Aberdeen Football Club means to John Hewitt. So John, welcome back for part three of our interview with you, hopefully. Hopefully the last bit, you'll be glad to know. When we finished up in part two, the sun had just set on that glorious 1982-83 campaign, the Cup Winners' Cup. Scottish Cup are safely deposited in, in the Pataudry Trophy Room. Fergie's words of encouragement after that Scottish Cup final are still ringing in the ears of the players. Going into the following campaign, can you remember what what were the kind of aims, do you think, for the squad, given what we'd achieved the season before? More of the same, basically. You know, the, the, the manager always sort of gave his targets to try and achieve, and he would always set the bar higher than the season before. So... Winning the, the Cup Winners' Cup in 83, it doesn't get any better, you know. So the next, the aim for us was to go back again and try and, and do it again, you know. And I think a lot of people were probably laughing as though to say, you must be joking, that'll never happen. Well, you know what happened. Exactly, absolutely. I mean, the season itself, it gets off the flyer. Uh, Dons are unbeaten until the end of September. It's a 2-1 defeat at the hands of Dundee United that ends that unbeaten record, but we make... Really good progress in Europe again. Akrenes of Iceland eventually dispatched in the Cup Winners' Cup before Beveren of Belgium are beating 4 1 in aggregate to set up a quarter final tie with Upeshes Doza after the new year. You're a much more frequent starter again during this campaign. The goals are flowing as well for you. Presumably, you know, you'd had major injury problems the season before, although it all turns out all right in the end. But for you, presumably, just try to get yourself back as a first pick on the team sheet and kicking on. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, as as you said, the season before was really top start, probably more of a stop than start, you know. So um, it's it's one of these. You look forward to your pre-season, you get a good pre-season under your belt, and then you're looking forward to the the, the following season to get up and running and trying on this, the score sheet as early as possible and start bringing a few goals. Absolutely. And before you know it, the first leg of the European Super Cup final arrives in late November. You play the full 90 minutes in Hamburg, where I guess kind of similar to the Bayern game in 83 away, we put on a really disciplined performance again to depart West Germany with the tie finally balanced at 0-0. Presumably at this point now, there's a real confidence amongst the team that we could go on and finish that job just as we'd done against Bayern Munich as well. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I'm looking at looking at ourselves as season campaigners in Europe now, you know, and we've nobody to fear. We've we've played the best and we've competed against the best and beat the best. So um, this was another feather in our cap, as you would say. We're playing um, Hamburg, we could them over two legs, then um, we, we become uh, super cup. Uh, winners as well and also the status of being number one club in Europe in 1983 In the home leg it's a European debut for Stuart McKimmy it's his first ever match in European football he'd only signed for the Dons just eight days prior you start again as we rock the European champions to see us become the first Scottish side to win two European trophies your recollections of the game itself you tee up Neil Simpson for the opener Yeah um, I think it was was it Simeon Mark? Simeon Mark, the goal scorers, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Simeon Mark. Uh, I actually don't really remember much. If somebody showed me the footage, yeah, that would, it would take back the memories, but, you know, it, it's so long ago. But I, I do know a typical European night at Pataudry, full house, the atmosphere, and we're looking forward to the challenge. You know, we knew it was going to be a tough game, but we believed in myself and uh, we managed to go out there and do the business and get the right result, you know. So, um, as I said, in the accolade of being the number one club in Europe in 1983, and I've actually seen the list of teams, yeah. you know, it's there, and the teams that are below it, below Aberdeen, is frightening. You know, Barcelona, Real Madrid, your Italian sides, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing, you know. So, to be at the top of the tree... It's pretty special. And just on that, I mean, did it sink in, do you think, to yourself, to the squad, the scale of achievement at the time? Or is it something that, looking back on now, a lot of players we've spoken to when they talk about when they're in their career, they're very kind of tunnel-visioned. They're in their career, and it's only later on they really sit back and go, actually, Jesus, what a, what an incredible achievement that actually was. Yeah, I think at the time, you know, we were riding a crest of a wave under Sir Alex. You know, he just, as I say, he kept setting the bar slightly a bit higher each season. And we we just, we had such a, a great squad of players that we just pushed, pushed each other on and we wanted to be successful. And that's what drove us on to win league titles, to win cups. And, and that's what it's all about, you know. So, uh, again, it was a, it was another uh, sort of task that set by the manager and we just jumped on board and we were, we were going to do our ultimate best to try and see if we could get back to the to the final again and, and try and win it again, you know? Absolutely. With one trophy already in the cabinet, we're then still fighting on four fronts. A strong league campaign sees us marching towards the title, but the League Cup sees us fall to Celtic in the semi-final that season. Another famous European night of pathology sees us overturn that 2-0 first leg deficit against Uchez Doza in the quarterfinal. Mark McGee's the hero with a hat-trick in the home leg to see us get through to the semi-final against Porto. When you make it through to the semis, there must be real that genuine belief at that point then that we might actually be able to win back-to-back European trophies here. Definitely. I mean, I think if you were to ask any of the guys that was involved at the time, you know that um, there was a real belief that, yeah, we could go to the final again and then try and, and win the back-to-back finals. Unfortunately for us, it didn't work out that way, you know. And but I remember the first game over in Porto, um, really wasn't much in the game at all, you know. We came away with a 1-0 deficit and we had great opportunities in the night to score one or two, but it wasn't to be. 
And then the second leg in Aberdeen wasn't really a typical European night, you know, atmosphere-wise. There was a bit of a a har, Mm -hmm. lovely sunny night, but a bit of a har came in. And um, it just didn't seem to happen for us on the night, you know. Porter got the goal, and and then after that, you know, we just felt... They were a good side, you know. I'm not not taking anything away from Porter. They were a very good side. But I, I still believe that possibly over the two legs didn't give our best, you know, and I just felt we maybe left something out there and I think if we got another crack at them, I think we would have been a different outcome. Yeah, I mean, the away leg in particular, you, you come off the bench to replace Dougie Bell in that one. It's obviously been subject to a lot of conjecture um, in more recent years about the prospect, the potential that perhaps the Romanian referee, Ion uh, Igma, had been, um, let's just say, bribed by Porto in that one. Was there any suspicions around, like, you guys who played that night watching what you saw, that there might have been something iffy going on there? Yeah, we, I mean, as I say, we've got a job to do. You know, the manager gets us prepared for the game. We don't worry about what's being said off the park. We just concentrate and try to do the job on the park. As I say, we, we had enough chances on the night, you know, to score one or two goals, but it wasn't to be. And unfortunately, we came away from Portugal with a, a 1-0 deficit. In the end, like we say, it's 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 not to be. Was there a real palpable sense of disappointment amongst the squad that you know we were so close? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Because as you say we were so close, you know, we felt as though getting to the semi-finals, another eye uh, away from getting to the final, and the belief that we had, we would have fancied ourselves against any of the two sides in the final, you know. Um. It wasn't to be, as I say, a real disappointment. Not, not taking anything away from Porto. They were a good side, you know, and uh, probably over the two legs deserved to get through, you know. Yeah, I'm just trying to remember who it was that won it that year. It was, was it Juve or did Porto it was win Juve, it? Yeah. Juve, yeah. Yeah, Juve beat Porto, didn't they? So, yeah, yeah it could have been obviously a, a famous meeting back with the Italian Giants as well. Obviously, famously mm-hmm. played them back in the early 70s, wasn't it? In, in European yeah. Cup plan. So, Sam was between those prototypes, and I think this actually is a real testament to to the to the mentality of the squad we had at the time as well. That Sam was between those prototypes. We we managed to get ourselves into another Scottish Cup final, and we we beat Dundee two 0 at Tynecastle before all eyes fall on the capital again. A midweek visit to Hearts on the second of May nineteen eighty four sees us visit Tynecastle, knowing that a win would seal a third championship. You start this one. Um, Stuart McKimmy's first goal for the club seals the title with four games to spare. It's your first league title. We spoke about this in part one. You were kind of just in and around the fringes in the 1979-80 team. Yeah. How special was that for you to get your hands on the championship? Of course. I mean, that, that it, me, the, the, the league title is, is the most important one because it's about consistency throughout the season, you know. And uh, as you say, we've been there or thereabouts, but just quite didn't get to over the line. Uh, I was fortunate enough to part of the squad you know the, the 79 squad yeah. albeit I, I was just sort of coming on the scene and I did a handful of I think substitute appearances but uh, to be be more part of the, of the, the start and the living in, in squad you know from a win at Castle was it was great you know but uh, again it was it was a fantastic achievement but it was long overdue you know we just felt as though we should have probably won it a bit earlier than we did, you know. It was great to eventually get done. Absolutely. And the season's still not over there. 
Celtic are dispatched after extra time in the Scottish Cup final. Mark McGee with the winner in extra time to seal a 2-1 win. One that saw the Cup return to Pizzoli for the third year in a row. Aberdeen becoming the first and only side outside the original old firm to win a league and Cup double. You miss out on the matchday squad though for that one. What was the reason for that? Yeah, that was a real disappointment for me. Um, I was hoping to, to be in the squad, you know, but I uh, got the bombshell just... Um, and then, well, actually, the pre-match before the game, you know, the manager named the squad and I wasn't on the bench. So it was a real disappointment. That's football, you know, you've just obviously got to take it on the chin and look forward to the following season and hopefully, you know, show him that he was wrong to leave you out and get back in the squad and get playing again. What was the reason he gave you for, for leaving you out in that one? Never gave him a reason. Never gave you one? That was it, just... Yeah, yeah. Did you get a medal for that? No, I don't, I'm not sure no. I did, actually. Because no. back in the I day... Think, I, I think it's just the, the, the 13 players yeah. that were uh, stripped. Because uh, obviously now, every Tom, Dick and Harry around is, <laughs> go get one, you know? Yeah. So, um, and, and I think, like I was saying, it, it talks a lot, I think, to the kind of mentality of the squad after the disappointment of the Porto semi-final, still to go out there and finish the league campaign strong way put the Scottish Cup in the in the cabinet again mm-hmm. as well. Like I say, the first and only, only team outside the original old firm to have won a League and Cup Dublin Scotland. It's it's another one of those achievements that Aberdeen Football Club can be incredibly proud of. And again, for you on a personal level, it's a really successful season. 39 starts plus 18 sub-appearances across all competitions. It's the most number of games you play in a season. For Aberdeen, 16 goals in total. For you again, it must just be a case of, right, next season, Back on it. Yeah, that, that, that's it. You know, you're you're playing, you're you're an integral part of the team or the squad, and you're just looking forward to the, the challenge of the new season and, and hopefully going to achieve some more success. Yeah. And it's a close season that starts to see some of the original members of that Fergie team start to depart. Dugrug V, Mark McGee, Gordon Strack, and all leave the club at that point, replaced by Tom McQueen, Frank McDougall, and Billy Stark. Um all kind of very different players to the original players who depart, but all come in and do do a good job in, in a very different way. Fergie had a really good knack at being able to to find players to replace players who left. Yeah. Something, he, something he did right the way through his career, in fairness. It's not exclusive to Aberdeen. It's a bit of a stop-start campaign for you, though, John. You come off the bench in the defeat to Dinamo Berlin in the European Cup before you return at the start of December in a 2-1 win at Hearts, coming off the bench to replace Frank Madugal. I'm presuming this is an injury issue again. Yeah, uh, <laughs> unfortunately for me, you know, it's, it's one of these things that when you go out and play, you go give 100%, you know, you're not going out to look to get injured, you're going out there trying your best, and uh, again, it was another season stop-start with injury, injury uh, problems, but um, unfortunately there's nothing you can do about it, you know, you know, just it's part and parcel of the game and in your career, I mean, there's players that will sail through a career, Hardly any injuries, and yeah. there's guys that'll got injuries just about every season, you know, and it's just something you've got to try and overcome. It seems as well, like for me, and looking from the outside in, obviously, as well, for you, you kind of sit almost between those two, don't you? Like, you kind of manage to get like a season, season and a half. Yeah. Of yeah. Back at it. Fortunately, as I say, the injuries that I've picked up in my career have always been quite bad ones, you know, not the ones that are maybe going to keep you out for a week or two, you know, some of the, the injuries that I've had, I've had to end up getting surgery for, you know, so that's, that's been a real disappointment, you know, but as I say, when you go out to play, you're not looking for it, you're going out there giving your all and 
sometimes these things happen and you've just got to yourself up, dust yourself down and go through the, the, the pain barrier, getting yourself fit again and then looking forward to getting back in and getting in again, you know. So it's it's disappointing when it happens, but I'm afraid there's nothing much you can do about it. You've just got to get on with it. Absolutely. It, it's it's the 12th of January before you get back in the starting lineup, a 5-0 win against Morton at Pataudry. And then you're kind of much more regularly back in and around the first team again, scoring in the 5-0 win over Alloa to start the Scottish Cup campaign. And you're right back in the thick of it as the final charge is on towards the league title. This eventually culminates, obviously, in that famous 1-1 draw against Celtic at Pataudry, a draw enough for Aberdeen to secure the title. The one and only time that Aberdeen have won the league at Pataudry. Um, mm-hmm. You play the full 90 minutes on this one. A nervy affair after Celtic take the lead after, well, let's just call it a soft penalty award, yeah, shall we? Yeah, that's right. Well, he's headed at second half. Captain Fantastic Willie Miller with the crucial header to level things up, ensure the Dons will win their third title in six years. Just talk to us a little bit, John, if you can, about the, the atmosphere in Petrosi that day and what can you remember about that one? Um, again, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge game. Anytime you're playing Old Farm at home, these are the games that you love playing in, whether it's at Petrosi or Ibrox or Parkhead, whatever it is. The big games... They seem to take the best out of you, or they should. You know, I always love playing in the big matches, and um, it was going to be a great atmosphere. I mean, a very tough game because still were a good side then, you know. But uh, as you say, falling behind, but we showed character. You know, we knew we had to try and get ourselves back in the game. Unfortunately for uh, Captain Fantastic, he popped up with a header and got the, the all important goal that got us the title. Absolutely. It sounds odd to say this. This this is one of the like really this is a question that really puts into perspective just how good a side you were part of at that point. Was there a sense of disappointment within the club that we'd finished that camp that campaign with only the league title to show for it? Yes, because as I keep saying, you know, Sir Alex kept setting the bar just that little bit higher each season and uh we we honestly truly believed in the squad that we had, you know, and we were we were going out every season to try and win everything. That's, that was our mentality. We we were all winners. If you weren't a winner, then you were no use to Sir Alex. So um, the winning mentality became easy for us because we got we got the habit quite quickly, you know. And it was just a case that every season push yourself, keep pushing yourself, and let's see where it goes. Let's see what we can win, you know. Let's just talk really quickly just about what we touched on earlier on. As I said, that season sees, you know, the likes of Doug Rugby, <clears throat> Mark McGee, Gordon Strachan leave, Billy Stark, Frank McDougall in particular, the two that jump out. Stuart McKimmy did the same as well, coming in to replace Stuart Kennedy. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to just look at how easy you think it was for those guys to come in and settle into to that squad. Stuart McKimmy, I think, is a really interesting one because he comes in eight days before the Super Cup final, gets yeah. chucked straight in. It's... It's a real battle as a fight, isn't it? No, I know. But I suppose for these guys coming up to Aberdeen, they'll be thinking, wow, you know, I've signed for Aberdeen Football Club. Because at the time, we were the best side in Scotland, you know. And um, if if, a, if a Sir Alec Ferguson was taking note of you and, and wanted you to come and sign for Aberdeen, you know, then you must be doing something right with the club that you're playing with, you know. So um, I, I'm sure if you ask these guys, you know, when they got the call from... The, the manager to say that Aberdeen was interested in him and would you know would they be interested in going? I'm sure they would have been delighted to, to move up to Aberdeen, you know, because as I say, we were the, the dominant side in Scottish football in, in the eighties and 
it would have been uh, a great club to be part of. I mean, Stuart says it. We, we spoke to Stuart just a couple of weeks ago, actually. Um, that'll go out shortly um, on the podcast. And Stuart kind of said he viewed it almost as though it was actually quite easy coming to Aberdeen purely because he was surrounded by better players and it made his life easier. He was just kind of still doing what he was doing at Dundee and he just looked better because he had better players around him all of a sudden. I think probably Stuart in a way is right, you know. I mean, I'm not... I mean, Stuart was a great player, but uh, I think it's a lot easier when you come into a side with guys that are very talented and, you know, have been used to success and winning things and these guys just come in and it helps lift their game as well, you know. So... Um, Every one of them fitted into the, the, the squad really well, you know. I think it was a, it was an easy fit for for every one of them. Yeah, and let's just talk really quickly about Frank McDougall, um, if we could, because for a lot of younger listeners, obviously Frank was only with the club for was two seasons, I think, just about before he had to retire with that back injury. Just how good a striker was was Frank McDougall? He was fantastic. Yeah, Luther. That's that. That's his nickname. But he was an absolute legend. He was such a funny guy. My sense of humour, but great to have around the dressing room. Um, we still keep in Dutch. We've got our group chats. You know, he comes up now and again to see the boys. And um, fantastic finisher. Head, left foot, right foot. Just put it in the box and he, he would go on and do the business. For you in that campaign, it's 16 starts, 12 sub-appearances. Like we say, kind of very injury hits. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll be going into the next season looking for a good pre-season. Get back fighting for that first-team spot. And that's... Exactly what happens. Air St. Johnston, Hearts United are all dispatched in the League Cup to set up a final against Hibs. You're an integral part of that run to the yeah. final. You play the full 90 minutes at Hampton on the 27th of October 1985 as we canter to a, a 3-0 win against Hibs, which completes the set of domestic trophies for you at the same time as Sir Alex does as well. Obviously, the League Cup is often viewed as being the kind of lesser of the trophies yeah. in Scotland, but presumably on a professional level, it's just got to be a great feeling to have completed the set. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for, for me as well, you know, it was my, my, my daughter, she was born that year as well. So, you know, it was having having known that she was sort of imminently due, you know, in the, the lead up to the, the final, every game we played in, and it was it was the League Cup, or it was called the Skull Cup at the time. Right. So um, I was playing really well, one man of the match in every game, and even the final, you know, uh the man of the match in the final set up a couple of goals for I think it was Eric um, I think it was Starkey I can't remember uh, Billy Stark yeah Billy Starkey yeah. I think it was Eric and Starkey yeah. so again a great campaign for me you know I played really well on the day and uh, as you say it was it was great to get the League Cup under the belt Progress in the European Cup is swift as well. Um, Akron is, again, if Iceland are, are put to the sword, as are Servette of Switzerland, sets up a quarterfinal with IFK Gothenburg. You come off the bench to put the Dons 2-1 up with just 10 minutes remaining at home before Johnny Ekstrom scores in the last minute to level the tie, give the Swedes the advantage. I've, we spoke to, it was actually with Stuart, actually, and um, this is a bit of a spoiler for that conversation, but never mind. Um, Stuart seemed to recall that he was dropped out of the starting lineup that day because... Sir Alex decided to move to three at the back to begin with. And perhaps that didn't necessarily work out as well as it could have done. Stuart came on, obviously, um, you come off the bench as well. We get ourselves 2-1 up. Despite the late away goal for the Swedes, still that sense of belief amongst us that we can go to Gothenburg, get the win? Um, I think so. I mean, obviously, we knew it was going to be a tough, tough, tough ask, you know, across the Sweden and up. But, um, 
you know, when you play for Aberdeen Football Club and the Saralic, she always felt that you were capable of winning a game, whether it be home or away. So we knew it was a big challenge, you know, but it was one that we were, we were relishing. And it's a return to the Ulevi as well. So there's it's written in the stars, surely, isn't it? Well, sometimes it is, sometimes <laughs> it's not. Yeah, it's not to have the fairy tale finish. A nil nil draw sees us head out on the away goals rule. How gutting is that? Because when you look back at that European Cup at that point, it's such a golden opportunity to possibly win the whole thing. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, again, it's. I think if we'd managed a result of Petrodri, it could have been also different over in, in, in Sweden, you know, but it wasn't to be. And um, new set of players as well, you know, so a different challenge for them, you know, but um, just it just wasn't to be, you know, we just couldn't get over the line in, in Sweden to get through to the semis. Absolutely. The league campaign falters a little bit, but we book a trip back to the Scottish Cup final after a, a one-year absence. This time we take care of Montrose, our both. Dundee and Hibs, it's a very East Coast-dominated Scottish Cup run, as it turns out, to the final against the Hearts side, demoralised after they lost the title the week before. And it's fair to say this final is is, is the John Hewitt show. I mean, I know that everyone will always, you know, everyone will always talk about, you know, yourself, about Super Sub and the Bayern game and the, the Real Madrid game. And, and, and that goes with the territory, I guess. But I often think that's a very unfair characterisation of you as well because yeah, you were much, much I mean, more than that. Yeah, I got I got that tag because as I say that if you, if you look at it, that season I was out quite a lot with injuries. Mm-hmm. I came back and managed to come on as a substitute in vital games and score vital goals, hence the tag super sub. I keep trying to tell people that anybody who knows their football and knows the history of the football club will know that I've started a lot more games for Aberdeen Football Club than I did Went on as a substitute. So, unfortunately, as I say, injury is part and parcel of the game. You don't go out to get injured, and these things happen. But, um, yeah, the Hearts game, actually, it was the first, we played Hearts at Tyne Castle, and it was the first televised game. It was a Sunday game, and we drew one each. Um, Yours truly managed to get the goal that day as well. And just when Hearts obviously were pushing for the title, and we knew. Without saying anything about it, you know, we knew that if we could get hearts on a big pitch like Hamden, we had the players that could, on the day, take care of them. You know, we were, we were better side than them, albeit they were the team that was challenging for the league that year. But we were quietly confident with the players that we had that if, if we got them at Hamden on the day and we performed to our capabilities, that we, we could beat them, you know. And that's the way it turned out. It couldn't get off to a better start, could it? It's um, just five minutes into the game when a, a fine run from yourself, you cut inside Craig Levine, leave him stranded, a neat left foot finish just from the edge of the box. It's a great start. What can you remember about that one? Yeah, just as you say, I picked the ball up and then just started moving forward, cut inside, cut inside again and, and got a shot away past um, Henry Smith. Henry Smith, yeah. And, uh, and into the far corner and that was... You know, the perfect start for us. It gave us a little bit of confidence as well, you know, got ourselves in front. And then from there on in, you know, I knew with the players that we had, you know, the, the defenders that we had, that they would have to take something special for Hearts to, to beat us on the day. And then when we eventually got the second goal just after half time, I was 
starting to get quietly confident that we're, we're hopefully get going and win, win the game that day. Aye, so your second, like you say, comes just after half time. It's a really neat, instinctive finish after some great work by Peter Weir on the left flank. That's obviously yeah. par for the course from Peter Weir. Billy Stark rounds the game off with a fine diving header from another Peter Weir cross. I'm right in thinking, though, you were substituted during the second half. Yeah. Were you raging about the fact you were denied the chance for a hat trick <laughs> in a hand in the final? It's like everything else, you know, that. Um... We were well. I, I was hoping to stay on and see the game, but um, I'd been kicked up and down the park for a water <laughs> kid that day, you know. And so, uh, I think uh, the, the boss was you know opportunity to take me off and give me a rest. Just on that one again. I mean, obviously, by this point in your career, you've you know you've you've, you've scored the winning goal in a cup winners' cup final. You've 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 scored the winning goal against Bayern Munich and everything that goes with it. You've scored crucial goals through your career, but. A double in a Scottish Cup final for the for your boyhood team. Where does that rank in the kind of Hewitt listing of, of goals and memories for you? Like well, well, obviously, I would probably say next to Gothenburg it would probably be up, up there. You know, the yeah. one in Gothenburg, and then obviously I think the two against Hearts um, would be probably next in line. Um, but I, I was very fortunate, you know. I've, I've managed to score a lot of important goals for the football club. Um, still to this day, the fastest goal as we spoke about earlier on in yeah. Scottish Cup history. So um, I, I achieved quite a bit with the football club. That's that's putting it politely. Let's 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 say, and also again, it's one of those finals that you know when you watch it back. I mean, the game's what as soon as it goes two 0 the game's the game's won. You can see hearts are just done. Or were you able at any point in that game to kind of just like take it in that this is this is kind of easy? We're we're going to win this game and 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 just enjoy it. No, it, it was that was never the case. You know, I mean, Sir Alex would have kept. There's no way he would have let you rest in your laurels. You know, he he was looking for you to go out and and keep pushing forward and try to get more goals in the game. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the one that strings to mind was the, the 3-0 victory I brought when we beat Rangers 3-0. They had two players sent off. And we came into the dress room, all pocket hoops, smiling and that. And he went absolutely ballistic. Because he says, what an effing chance you've had to really rub it into them today, i.e. score five, six, seven goals. And we possibly could have, you know. Yeah. So he was rage. <laughs> he was raging. So uh, that's that's but that's just the way he was, you know. He was when he saw an opportunity to really rub it in, especially with the old farm, he wanted to do it, you know. Yeah, it's funny you brought up that game. I was watching the highlights in that game about two or three days ago now, um, and I was going to ask you about it, and it kind of slipped my mind. But we might as well do it now. What can you remember about that game? Is mad. That game is absolutely. Mental. If you yeah, watch that game yeah. back now, and you if you apply modern footballing like refereeing to that, that game finishes about. Well, it doesn't finish. It's going to be abandoned after about twenty minutes. <laughs> yeah, I was I was a, a few hefty tackles going on in the park that day. Uh, Hugh Barnes, um, was it Craig Parkson? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, I think that was the two Rangers players that eventually got the red cards. Um, it was uh, <laughs> was wasn't for the faint-hearted. Let's just say. No, I was going to say, and especially because it's a point as well where basically there's fans on the pitch and it's all kicking off. I mean, at that point as well, are you guys thinking, well, hang on, what the like? No, this is when you're looking for a strong referee to 
stamp his authority on the game. And I can't remember who it was, but we always felt going down to Glasgow, you know, he weren't only playing against the, the, the Rangers or Celtic players, you were playing against the fans and the officials as well, because most of the time these uh, officials that were uh, refereeing at the games were probably boyhood Rangers or Celtic fans themselves, you know, as as you see to this day. So it's, it's a difficult one, but something you've got to overcome, you've got to be stronger, let people see that you're not going to be intimidated by these people, you know, the fans and not so. But again, it was everything that Sir Alex installed into us, you know, to believe that we were better than them and we could beat them down in their own patch and that's just the way it was. I think you scored the third that day, don't you? You scored the third one. Yeah, I I, I managed to chip Nicky Walker to the edge of the box, yeah. It's a great finish as well. It's just one of those, again, you're just like, there you go. Anyone that wants to just talk about just you in the terms of super sub and that, I'm always like, no, like, John Hoot was much more than just a guy that you took off the bench. Like, look at some of the goals you score, you know? I know, I know. As I say, it was one of these things that it was a season where it was really more stop than start for me, but I managed to come on in vital games and score really important goals for the club, hence the the super sub tug, you know, um, I don't mind it, you know, I know what I did for the football club and that's, that's the only thing that matters to me. Absolutely. And hey, listen, the vast, vast majority of Aberdeen fans recognise that as well. Um, the following season, you're, you're kind of once again back fit in the first team. The bombshell news comes to in November 1986 that Sir Alex Ferguson is going to be departing to take the job at Old Trafford. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, you're Sir Alex's first signing at Aberdeen. Um he brings you through in the first team, gives you those opportunities. What's your initial reaction to the news that he's he's heading off down south? Well, it was a bit of a bombshell, but to be quite honest with you, it was something that I think most of us were expecting, you know. We just felt that he'd achieved everything that he could do in Scottish football. There was any club that was going to take him away from us it was going to be Manchester United. And I think he said that on record, you know, over the years that um, it would only be Man United and Man United only that he would have left Aberdeen for. And, uh, well, I mean, obviously it was a huge blow for the squad, you know, because we'd been led by the best and unfortunately he was moving on to pastures new. And... um, Again, we didn't know who was going to be taken over from him. You know, we obviously had to wait for that. But again, we're, we're a great bunch of uh, professionals. You know, guys still wanted to be successful, still wanted to try and win league titles and cups. So whoever was going to be coming in had a, a good squad of players to work with. Yeah, and you kind of touched on it. The board take a, a decent period of time, actually, to, to figure out who they're going to bring in. Um mm-hmm. Somewhat surprisingly, after that period of time, the board decides to go for Ian Porterfield as the guy to take charge. He played his first game, a 1-0 one, a win over Rangers at a, a let's call it a boisterous pathology. That's the best way to put yeah. it, I think. Uh, you've got a key role in the only goal that day, but what was your, if you can remember, your initial kind of, I guess, reaction to the news that Porterfield was the guy and then your initial impressions once he actually came into the club? Um, again, I only, only knew him of... In the man that scored that goal in the FA Cup final for Sunderland. So yeah. uh, I didn't know much about him. I, I knew he had managed uh, quite a number of clubs, you know. So um didn't know what to expect. And I, I'm sure the rest of the players at the time 
probably are the same uh, as myself. You know, just let's see what what he what he was like as a manager and, and what he was going to try and do with, with with the squad. You know, and and what were those kind of first impressions when he does come in the door and you start to see what like I mean it's it's almost it's the impossible job, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's like like David Moyes filling Sir Alex shoes when he left Old Trafford. You know, never really got the chance, but. Uh, with Ian Porterfield coming in, um, it's missing impossible for him, really, you know. But as I say, when you look at his record in paper, it's actually pretty good, considering. Um, but when you try to compare him with Sir Alex, it's like night and day sort of thing, you know, on everything. And that's the one thing I would say when Sir Alex left was, was the. the professionalism and the discipline that he installed as you, you know, when you were a younger player and then you gradually go come up through the ranks to become a seasoned campaigner and an older professional and it's not till these guys move on you just realise what they've actually done for you, you know, as, as a professional. Yeah, absolutely. That season, it, it kind of peters out a little bit. Um, it's our first trophyless season since the 1980-81 campaign. The following season after that isn't isn't much better. A run to the League Cup final uh, is the bright, bright moment in the campaign, which is just filled with too many draws. I think this goes to the point you were saying about Ian Portfield's overall record at Aberdeen is, in terms of losses, for example, we didn't lose very many games no, at Portfield, no. but we drew just yeah. an inordinate amount of football games. And I think a lot of guys we've spoken to as well who, who played under Portfield would probably say the same thing, that he perhaps took that mentality from English football where he'd managed and played his entire career where you go on the road and you get a draw that's a good result whereas for Aberdeen that's where you guys were wasn't acceptable yeah the other thing with the difference I I found with in Portfield and Sir Alex as well is Sir Alex involved everybody at training younger ones trained with the first team in Portfield didn't he took a squad at 18 and then everybody else went with Teddy you know Felt was a bit disheartening for the guys that weren't in that 18 squad, you know. And training was quite, didn't seem monotonous, but it was, you know, it was the same thing every day. Whereas under Alex and, and Archie, training was it was good, you know. It was it was varied and it was it was good. It was good training, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think I'm right in thinking. I think I've read this somewhere before that. By the time Porterfield uh, leaves, he obviously resigns at the end of that season. You'd start to become pretty disillusioned, I think, with life at the club as well at that point. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'd already made up my mind long before even Porterfield left, you know, that I just, after scoring the two in the final against Hearts, you know, and then him coming in and obviously with, with, with David Dodge and Charlie, he just... Just really seemed to want to play me up front, you know. He was trying to play me more in a sort of midfield role, and I really just wasn't enjoying it, you know. I just felt as though I had something to offer the club up front, you know, in a, in a sort of striking capacity. But um, obviously, he had other ideas, so um, I made the organising decision that I was going to move on, you know. And in hindsight, it's one thing I look back as. I would never have done a local boy, a, a, an Aberdonian, a supporter, being a ball boy, being everything with the football club. You know, it yeah. was, it was, uh, wasn't that? It was heart wrenching, you know, making that decision because I didn't really want to leave the club. 
I wasn't enjoying my football and I just felt that I had to make that decision to try and, and sort of resurrect my footballing career, you know. So I made the decision uh, to, to move on. And it was ironic because before I signed for Aberdeen, uh, when Billy Maneel was the manager at Aberdeen, he tried to get me to sign as a schoolboy, you know. But obviously, as I said to you, I had a lot of clubs interested in there and um and then when he moved to Celtic, he tried to get me to sign for Celtic as a schoolboy. Because Lenny Taylor, who was the youth coach at Aberdeen as well, was also my school teacher. So he phoned Lenny at school to see if um, he could try and talk me around to coming down to Celtic, you know. But it wasn't going to be the case. But obviously, if I knew Porterfield um, um, left and Alex Smith had come in, and in hindsight, I, I really probably wish I'd sort of maybe seen out that season because I really liked Alec. Alec Smith as a man, you know, a great man, a great manager and um, possibly in hindsight I, I, I maybe should have sort of stayed and tried to fight for my place and work under Alec because as I say I liked him as a as a, as a person, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he was a great manager as well. But, uh, anyway, I made a decision, uh, I got the phone call out of the blue for, for Billy and um, I, I was actually left Back Aberdeen, I think it was Sweden. I think they went away in pre-season training, so I was left at home with training with the younger ones. So um, fitness-wise, I wasn't as fit as I probably should be, you know, because the training wasn't as as good uh, as, as it would be when you were with the first team. Anyway, um, got the call, drove down to Celtic uh, on the Saturday morning with my wife, um, through a medical and any paper there and then all the way back up on the Saturday afternoon. It was opening day of the season because Celtic were at um, Tynecastle. I think they won 3-0. I can't remember where Aberdeen were. And back up the road on the Saturday and basically parked a bag and then I was back to Glasgow on the Sunday in the hotel and that was me, you know. So the first two or three weeks at Celtic was basically like pre-season training for me trying to get my fitness levels up. And then in between that, I played uh, one or two uh, League Cup games and then I started a game at Love Street, and unfortunately, at the time I didn't know, but I knew I had to come off. I, I thought, oh, I've done something because my knee was in agony, so I had to come off. A lot, I thought I maybe from the cartilage, but little did I know I'd actually ruptured my medial ligament. Mm. But uh, nine weeks later, uh, I could actually run in a straight line, and it was okay. Somebody rolled a ball to me, and I tried to side foot a pass. I was in sheer agony. Actually, I played four games for Celtic, taking injections in my knee, you know, and I knew I wasn't right. I tried to tell Billy Meneal that, and eventually I woke up in the hotel about three or four o'clock in the morning in, in excruciating pain. Um, it was that bad. I had to get in a taxi and get straight to the hospital, and I knew there was something wrong. And then after a considerable amount of time seeing the best of surgeons in Glasgow, you know, I was in and out and then had thrustbase done ice. Eventually it took me in, opened me up and then found that I'd ruptured the medial ligament in my knee. So I was out of football for about about a year, you know, yeah, for yeah. um last for I think it was about eight weeks and then on my, my rehab up with that I got a um staple into my knee and unfortunately it started it's way back out of the bone, 
and then the ligament was sort of touching it, you know, so that was that was something else that I had to go back in and get to move. But the ligament had managed to heal back on the bone, so that was a bonus. It was again, it was just like about a whole year out of football. And I probably in all my footballing career, I've never worked so hard to get myself fit and get myself back in into contention to play because I felt as though I wanted to prove to the to you know to the certain fans that I was worthy of signing for him, you know. But unfortunately, it wasn't it wasn't meant to be. I, I played a handful of reserve games, scored a few goals in the lead up to the the final against Motherwell at, at Hamden. I never made the squad, and some of the boys couldn't believe it. But scored, I think it was about six or eight goals in three games, reserve games, and I felt as though I was, you know, I should have been in the squad. I didn't make the squad. Double beat Celtic four two. And I knew then I was I was in a career for my Celtic, you know, and then um, he left, and then Liam Brady came in. I I had already made up my mind, you know, I was I was going, and then he came in and said to me, "Look, um, you're you're free to go if you want to go." So it was a case I tried to get myself fixed up with another club. Um, David Hay came in. In and asked me to come to St Mirren for the remainder of the season, which I did. I played with them, but they were in sort of financial difficulty at the time. They were really struggling and didn't manage to stay up. And then, obviously, the um, hey, moving on and me Bowen took over the helm at Love Street and me just turned everything around about. You know, he was basically working with kids, 16, 17, 18-year-old kids. Asked me if I would stay on and, and, and help him, you know, with Club Money and Kenny McDowell. And I just felt it up in my career then, yeah, why not? You know, it was worth a challenge. Uh, I could have went to Marnock with Tommy Burns and Billy Stark. You know, I was very friendly with these guys at Celtic. And but I, I'd sort of got some of the, the younger ones at St. And I just felt it was a real challenge for us, you know, so I decided to stay there. Yeah, and I mean... It's one of these, isn't it? Because I think that people have this perspective or perception, I guess, um, <clears throat> that you'd have been, you know, coming to the end of your career almost when you were when you made the move to Celtic. But real realistically, you would have only been 26, 27, 25, 26. Like yeah, yeah, so it's not as though it was like the, the proper back end of your career at that point. Still a lot to prove, still a lot to do. And yeah, I was at sort of prime career, but unfortunately, you know, with the, the, the serious knee injury I, I got that it really came out of football for a whole year, you know, and um, as I say, I've never worked so hard to get myself properly fit. You know, I was probably the fittest guy at, at the parkhead at the time because I was I was actually training with a guy called Pat Clinton who was Scottish featherweight champion. He was training for a world title fight. Okay. So he was in working with Brian Scott, the physio, and myself. So between the three of us, we used to go out to Strathclyde Park every day. We'd have a workout there. I'd have a sprint coach come in on a Thursday. I would do a work on the track at Parkhead on a Thursday. I mean, I was super fit, you know. I was really, really fit. But um, unfortunately, it, it, that went for nothing, you know. So disappointing, but these things happen. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously then, as you touched on, you get the kind of challenge with some Mirren to to work with the youngsters etc there did that kind of obviously after that you moved to Dundalk for a season as a, as a player manager um, notable as well obviously for the fact you scored against Aberdeen in a pre-season match as well which is a nice yeah. little factoid did did you feel so actually going down the managerial coaching route was something that was really kind of appealing to you at that point uh, at the time yeah because I'd obviously I'd 
went to Lards and uh, when I was still a, a young nerd with all my coaching badges then, you know, so I, I had the I had the qualifications and having worked with Sir Alex and Archie and um you know seeing what they'd sort of us as young players, I just felt it would have been nice to try and take that step and get involved in some some sort of capacity in in the coaching side myself, you know, and I got the opportunity to to go over to Ireland. Um, took the Dundalk job. I was three jobs. I was Dundalk, Finharts, and Sligo. But at the time, I knew Dundalk were the bigger of the three clubs, and albeit they were like semi-professional, you know. But what I, what I didn't realise was the challenge that lay ahead. You know, when I go over there, I was basically settled in the river. You know, if I known then wouldn't have moved my family across because I wasn't even in the job six weeks and yeah. the chairman at the time was telling us if, if we don't get any money at this club we'll be bust by Christmas and I was sort of, I was sort of taken aback you know and then I started about a digging and finding out you know what was going on and then even Sir Alex you know I was in contact with him quite a bit and he said to me he says look it's just tell him that you'll be working you'll do your best try and keep in the league and you know? he says but is you need to get yourself out of there because there's just nothing there for you, you know. So um, at the time, you know, I was thinking about my, my family and my wife and, and things were finding it hard to settle over there. And eventually, I think it was nine, nine months, ten months into the, the, the campaign, I made the decision that we were going to go back home, you know, because you know, this not so much the standard, but the way the club was run, it was like running a junior club back home. Yeah. You know, and I... I, I, I I mean, all I did when I went over there was make things more professional, you know. The first training session we had, I was only seven players turned up for training. said to the, the assistant manager, who, again, all these guys I inherited, I said to him, the rest of the boys not know, training starting tonight. And he went, eh, this is it. <laughs> I burst out laughing. And he went, seriously? And he went, I just haven't even got a team to put on the park. This can't be it. And he went, well, but us younger boys in the town, we can use some of them. And I, then I started to realise just how bad things were, you know, and um, I managed to get some younger players back home from Scotland to come across and, and uh, utilise them as well. I mean, it was a, it was an uphill task, you know, it was huge. I mean, they didn't even, you know, training gear, they turned up, it was like a, 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 a mix, you know, boys with Liverpool tops, Man United, Celtic, it was that sort of thing. Aye. So I've been used to working in a more professional manner, so... Um, I met a guy over there who was really good. He was very friendly with the chairman of a Neil sports manufacturer in Dublin. Yeah. So we went up, met him, ended up coming away with a, a, a three-year contract with their, with Neil. So basically, I managed to get the guys proper training gear. They got boots, you know. They, they were like, wow, they'd never seen this before, you know. I'd even, I even had to go in and uh, get new showers installed in the the dressing room because I was only I think it was about three showers in the dressing room and and then I got uh, old second-hand washing machines and double dryers plumbed in as well because it was costing the club a lot of money to put the kits to the dry cleaners to get done so I had my Eddie Scott equivalent over there um, and he was brilliant and uh, he did all the you know the, the laundry and that and that saved saved us a bit of money as well. I say it was like running a junior club, you know. For me, they were they weren't really ready for the, the semi-professional standard at the time. But 
saying that, you know, over the years they've went on and progressed, and Stephen Kelly's did a great job with them, you know, and so yeah. it's Stephen Kenny, sorry. And um, but again, the people that were there at the time, they've all died, you know. So I, I don't think they're involved with the club at all now. So the club will move forward, and it's great to see that, you know, because the, in, in my opinion, they were always one of the bigger Irish clubs, you know, when you've seen any of the, the semi-professional Irish teams, they were always, the adult was always one that was getting into the, the European sort of side of things. So it was good to see. Yeah, and obviously the, the Irish games kind of come on leaps and bounds as well in the last kind of 10, 15 yeah, years. Yeah, definitely. Um, after you left Dundalk, um, come back for a, come back to Scotland for a wee spell at the Ross County then as an assistant at Cove with your old mucker, Duke Rugby. Yeah. That then obviously wraps things up. Did the kind of experience at Dundalk, did that just kind of put you right off the idea about management? Yeah, well, yes and no, you know, but when I eventually came back, uh, it was ironic that I met an old school friend of mine who I hadn't seen for years. Just I was in, in the, the town centre and um, it was like, it was one of them. He was stopped at his car at the lights at Union Street and didn't, so I didn't have time to talk. So he, I was laughing because he was driving this beautiful white Mercedes car. And I says, he says, oh, he says, look, he says, look, here's my card, my phone. He says, we need to get a car chop and that. So that's what we did. Then I think it was the following Friday I met him, went for lunch, and then I ended up going and working for him in the recruitment business for 10 years. So it was uh, <laughs> it was uh, a real sort of positive thing and, and for me to, to sort of bump into him, you know, because I always knew when I, I would come back to Aberdeen that uh, it was getting myself a job and getting and getting myself going, you know, because football doesn't go on forever. Yeah. So like everybody else, you've got to get yourself a job. Fortunately, I, I managed to get into the, the recruitment side of things and then everything sort of snowballed for there. Let's just quickly talk, just really quickly, about international football, John. Um, obviously, you had six caps, I think, under-21 level. I think six is right, but I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong on this one. I couldn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Any sense, though, for you of, like, I guess, regret or disappointment that that never translated to a full international cap, given the success you had at a club like Aberdeen, who were winning everything at the time? I was I was one occasion that uh, the manager told me that Andy Roxburgh was calling out his squad, you know, but and then... Picked up a, a bad knee injury against Celtic in the, I think it was a two-each game, I think it was. Okay. Uh, slid in for a ball and Alan Snedden sort of stood on my kneecap and managed to rip, rip my knee right down. I ended up getting stretched off and getting 52 stitches into my knee that day. So you can imagine it was a fair size of gap, yeah. you know. So, and prior to that, I'd been playing really well, you know, and, and the manager just said to me that, you know, Andy Roxburgh was going to be calling up into the next squad, you know. So I was pretty chuffed about that, but it, it never materialised. So it's a point because, as I say, I played every level. I played schoolboy, played youth, uh, under-21s. Just full international wasn't the one that didn't come from it. But again, these things, well, don't rest in your laurels. It either happens or it doesn't, you know. But um, my concern was to make sure I was doing my best for Aberdeen Football Club, and that's what I really do. Absolutely. Listen, all in all, John, your career with Aberdeen saw you make a total of 363 appearances for your boyhood club. Places you 13th on the all-time appearance list. You scored a total of 89 goals, which also sees you joint 13th on the all-time goal scorer list alongside Gordon Strachan. You lifted one European Cup Winners' Cup, one European Super Cup, two league titles, three Scottish Cups because you didn't get a medal for that one in 84. <laughs> yeah. One League Cup, 
the man who lived the dream. John, listen, we'll wrap things up here. Thank you so much for your time over the three parts of this interview series. I'm going to finish up here with the same question that we ask all of our guests. What does Aberdeen Football Club mean to you? Everything. I love it. Even now, even now, and it, it hurts really watching him you now because I know where the club's been and, and I would obviously, as a fan, you would love to see him up to that heights again. I don't think it'll ever happen, but we need to be doing better, you know, and I hope and pray that Jim Goodwin will get the club forward next season and the fans will start to see better things from the, the playing staff at Aberdeen Football Club because they deserve it. You know, they're a great bunch. They've seen the good times. They've seen some bad times. Uh, they've been seeing some really bad times. So, I think it's time we got to see some good times again. So hopefully next season, it might be the start. Absolutely. John Hewitt, on behalf of, well, ourselves in the podcast, but I think as well, we, we don't generally try to talk on behalf of the Aberdeen support, but I'm going to do it now. Thank you for everything you did for our football club. Thank you all for joining us on the Episode Football Podcast. Stand free. Thanks, Gary. And that wraps up this week's episode of the ABZ Football Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Please remember to like, subscribe, Follow whatever on your podcast player of choice. Join us next week for episode 45. Yes, that's right. There are no weeks off in this podcast. I don't remember agreeing to that when I signed my contract for this show, but hey, that's apparently how it is. Next week, because we enjoy inflicting pain upon ourselves, we will take a comprehensive look at the 2021-22 season. We will take the journey right to the very start against Hecken in the Europa Conference League, and we follow it all the way to full-time at Pataudry against St Mirren and just try to understand where it all went wrong. To help us with this, we hope to be joined by a very special guest and long-term friend of the show. We look forward to seeing you then. Stand free. This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast was brought to you by Anderson Quantity Surveying. AQS's exceptional contractor tendering and comparison service provides you with a professional tendering documentation for your contractors to quote against, allowing you to have a fully transparent and like-for-like tendering process, saving you money in the long run, avoiding hidden and unexpected costs at a later date, and ensuring you select the most appropriate contractor for your project. To find out more, give AQS a call on 01224 502 550 or email gary at andersonqs.co.uk